there was a salad place in the basement of my law firm. And we used to go every day for lunch and you'd spend $30 on a salad and kind of not think anything of it. And a lot of times we'd expense it to the firm and you can't do that anymore. You're listening to Financial Grown Up with me, certified financial planner, Bobby Rebel, author of How to Be a Financial Grown Up. And you know what? Being a grown up is really hard, especially when it comes to money. But it's okay. We're going to get there together. I'm going to bring you one money story from a financial grown up, one lesson, and then my take on how you can make it your own. We got this. Hey, friends, the glam life of an entrepreneur. You can work from the beach, but you also need to watch out for those $30 a day salads because that expense account has sailed away. Welcome, everyone. So glad you are here. We have a great guest today in novelist Christina Alger, whose latest book, The Financial Thriller, The Banker's Wife, kept me up all weekend. I could not put it down until the very last page, and it was a good ending. The book is fiction, but also very realistic, taking us into the secretive world of Swiss banking and chock full of villains, if you can figure out who exactly are the villains. You can really tell that Christina's background in banking and law, as well as growing up in a family that worked in finance, gave her insights into this actually really crazy world that we haven't seen before in a novel, at least not that I'm aware of. This book takes you on quite the adventure. Alger wrote her first book, The Darlings, as a side hustle while working 120 hours a week. When she ditched the day job, though, to write full-time, Christina also walked away from those pricey perks, and she had to learn to be quite the financial grown-up. You're going to love this story. Here is Christina Alger. Hey, Christina Alger, you are a financial grown-up. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking over my weekend. I spent the weekend reading your new book. I got a sneak peek at it, The Banker's Wife. We're going to talk more about it after your money story, but just high level, give us a little sneak peek. Well, The Banker's Wife is a thriller and it's set sort of in Europe and New York and it's about a woman who is an expat, an American expat living in Geneva, and her husband is a private banker, and he goes missing on a private plane, and she goes in search of him. It's really kind of a fun, fast-paced thriller that kind of takes you through the world of offshore banking. So we love that, a money thriller. And to get to the point where you are giving us this wonderful novel, and by the way, it's your third novel, you had to leave your corporate job and become your own boss. And that involved some big money decisions of your own. Nothing quite as dramatic as what goes on in The Banker's Wife. Trust me, (laughs) this book goes there. But let's hear about your life and your money story. Yeah. When I graduated from college, I was an English major. I had no actual marketable skills. And I went to work at Goldman Sachs. Okay, let me just correct that. You must have had some skills to get a job at Goldman Sachs, but go on. (laughs) Well, I had no financial skills. And I grew up in a family where both my mom and my father worked in finance. I had never taken economics. I'd never taken accounting. My dad passed away when I was a senior in college. And I sort of realized that I had to start paying my own bills. And (laughs) so I decided to take the highest paying job I could get, which was a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs. And they were one of the few banks that were hiring people out of undergrad who did not have a finance background. 
So I took that job and I sort of stuck with that through my 20s. I went to law school and when I came out, of, I became a corporate lawyer because I had spent these two years at Goldman Sachs learning how to be a financial analyst. So I spent about 10 years doing finance in sort of various roles. And I wrote The Darlings really as a passion project. I wrote it while I was working as a lawyer. And when so I let me just say, so it was a side hustle. Was it intended to make money or just it was just a project? No, it was just a project. I never thought it would get published. I never actually even intended for it to see the light of day. I sent it to a writer friend of mine who asked, you know, so are you still writing? Are you still working on sort of creative projects? And I so I sent this to her and she sent it to her agent and her agent called me and said, I really like this. Do you want to publish it? And I thought, oh, wow, I don't Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I have the time to do that. Um, and so I sort of hemmed and hawed about it. And, and the I, economics. I mean, I don't know what the advance was, but you know, you're know, you in a job that you've said you're in for the money. Yes. And now, I mean, it's a first time novel. It might pay well, but probably not the same. No. And it's funny, you know, being a lawyer and being a novelist are complete opposites. I mean, being a lawyer is such a consistent, steady job. You know, you're really paid. Sal- it's a salary-based job. The bonuses are not huge. And it's just a very consistent job. You sort of stay there, you keep your head down and you work hard and you get paid very well and you have great benefits. And it's a very conservative kind of risk averse job. And obviously being a writer is the exact opposite. You get paid in kind of these lump sums. You never know when you're going to get paid next. There are no benefits. So it was a huge, huge transition. And so how did you make that transition? So we took the book to auction. It actually did really, really well at auction, and we sold it for a fairly large advance. But it was a big leap for me. It was really stressful. It was, it was hard in the beginning to figure out how to be my own boss and you know how to kind of manage my budget, given that I wasn't getting a consistent salary. So what did you do? What was it like? I set up a budget that would carry me through the next year. And I really stuck to it. In fact, every month I was sort of coming under my budget because I was so scared that I would run out of money. (laughs) So So give us an example of something maybe that you would have done in your lawyer life financially and you weren't doing anymore as a novelist year one. Well, the first thing and the most obvious thing that I actually, and this is a change that I will never go back. I stopped doing takeout. I just, I stopped. (laughs) I now cook lunch and dinner. I bring my lunch to work if I'm going somewhere. I mean, New York is sort of dangerous because there's so many quick lunch options and dinner options around, but it's expensive. It adds up. There was a salad place in the basement of my law firm and we used to go every day for lunch and you'd spend $30 on a salad and kind of not think anything of it. And a lot of times we'd expense it to the firm and you can't do that anymore. So I had to get much more organized about doing meal planning and grocery shopping. And But I also had more time. So, you know, I actually really enjoy cooking. And that's something that my husband and I do a lot together. And my kids and I now do it together. And so it's been like actually a really positive change. But we save a lot of money as a family by not not really eating out very much. And we almost never do takeout. So that's one thing. And then another is that I don't take cabs anywhere. Um, I was always in a rush when I was at my law firm. And I was always traveling around the city. I literally can't remember the last time I took a cab. I walk everywhere. I take the subway. My kids love the bus. 
that's a huge cost savings. And I also realized that I don't have to dry clean my clothes <laughs> the way I did when I was a lawyer. I had, you know, when I was a lawyer, I was wearing a suit every day and I would honestly throw things in the dry cleaning bin because I was just too lazy not to do it, <laughs> to think about it. And, <laughs> and now, busy. You were working 120 hours a week. <laughs> you know, and then I was just a lot more conscious about going out with friends at night and the money I was spending on entertainment and that kind of thing. And what is the lesson then for our listeners? What's their takeaway from this? One of the things I realized is that when you work these very, very intense corporate jobs, you're spending money to create time. And that goes away when you cease to have a job that takes over your whole life. So a lot of the things that I was spending money on, I realized didn't actually bring me any joy. They were just, I was spending money to save time. So I was paying for a housekeeper. I was paying for, you know, transportation. As I said, I was paying for takeout and all these things. Really what I was buying was time because I was so busy that I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have the time to go grocery shopping and actually sit down on a Sunday and plan out what I was going to eat for the whole week. And when you get back some of that time and you reclaim that time, you can actually save a lot of money because you're not making decisions kind of on the fly based on what's the most convenient thing to do right then. Let's talk about your everyday money tip because it's kind of along the same theme and it's really about date night with your husband because now you're married. When you start, when the darlings came along, you were single. And when the banker's wife comes along now, you are married. I am. I am. We have started doing date night at home and we cook a really nice elaborate dinner and we light candles. We set the table and my husband brings me flowers. Oh, a date at home. And it's really nice. And then sometimes we'll watch a show or a movie on the couch and we'll drink wine and sort of do whatever we would do at a restaurant, but at home. And we save money because it's just infinitely cheaper to eat at home. But we also save on babysitting and sort of the mental gymnastics of getting a babysitter. (laughs) So (laughs) we just find it so much easier to be like, okay, Thursday night, we're doing it. And, um, you know, and it makes a big difference when you set the table and you use real silverware and you're not sort of shoving food in your mouth because you have to put your kids down in, you know, the next 30 minutes. So we kind of make a production of it. And it's nice. It's really romantic. And my husband actually has now started to cook with me, which is fun. So it's a fun, different kind of date night. So I highly recommend it. (laughs) So let's talk about The Baker's Wife because I told you this beforehand. I chose to read this rather than watch The Handmaid's Tale, which is basically huge if anyone's ever watched The Handmaid's Tale. I could not put this book down. I read it in a day and a half. There's a lot of things that happen that at least I didn't see coming at all, but make total (laughs) sense in hindsight. You're like, of course, but they don't make sense. Tell us about how you even came up with this idea. Did you know about this world? Did you know about things like this without getting too into the details? Were you witness to this? I did. You know, I did because I, so, well, I sort of have in two ways. One is the book is set in Geneva and my uncle actually lives in Geneva. And so as a child, we would spend a lot of time visiting him there. And I always thought the expat world there was just so glamorous and it's sort of mysterious. And I just thought it was always, I always thought it would be a fabulous sort of setting for a novel. But you know, I became really fascinated with the Panama Papers case, which is the data leak that came out of a Panamanian law firm that did a lot of business with these offshore banks. 
And in the summer of 2016, when I was writing this book, the Panama Papers had just leaked out and they were all over the news. And I'm sort of a nerdy financial news junkie. And I just couldn't get enough of this case. I thought it was so fascinating that someone from inside this law firm had leaked all this really confidential information. And it occurred to me that there was this whole world of banking that exists completely outside any sort of regulatory body. And it's, you know, for the ultra rich and it's all operated in kind of numbered bank accounts and no one knows who owns the numbered bank accounts. And it's, it's super shady. And it's just it amazed me that there are trillions of dollars in this sort of offshore banking system that exist. And all the different people that can be involved, they're, you know, drug cartels that store their money, they're presidents, they're all kinds of people. There was another case I did a lot of research on, and it's this man named Bradley Birkenfeld, who is an American private banker at UBS, United Bank of Switzerland, and he was a whistleblower. And he ended up, this is such a crazy story, he knew what he was doing was, you know, that he was helping a lot of people evade taxes by having Americans, you know, bank at UBS, and he knew what he was doing was illegal, and he sort of saw the writing on the wall, and he ended up becoming a whistleblower for the IRS, and he gave over a lot of confidential information from inside the bank to the DOJ and the IRS, and he ended up, they ended up prosecuting him anyway, so he went oh to Oh my jail. gosh, really? Oh Yes, for aiding and abetting this <gasps> tax evasion, and then he walks out of prison, and the IRS awards him, I think, $114 million as Because the a finder's fee. Oh my gosh. And so it's a totally insane story. Well, I think you have another bestseller on your hands. So congratulations. Thank you so much. That's so kind. And where can people find out more about you? Well, you can always go to my website. So it's ChristinaAlger.com. It's C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-L-G-E-R.com. And also on Penguin Random House, they have pages on all the different authors and the book's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So And to follow you on all your social channels. Yes, definitely. I'm I'm all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Christina. No, thank you. It was such a pleasure. So I'm still kind of trying to process how Christina found the time to write while working 120 hours a week. But therein lies the big takeaway. Financial grown-up tip number one, if you want to do something you love, you will find the time because you won't be able to stop yourself. Notice I didn't say it will necessarily pay, separate topic, whether that project will pay, but Christina wrote her first book as a way to relax and cope with the stress of her job. As it happens, the book was also really good and she was able to turn it into a profitable project. But that has nothing to do with the fact that she was finding the time while working 120 hours a week. So the next time you feel you don't have time for a project, just think about Christina and finding those pockets of time in that crazy week. If it feels like it is a chore and you're struggling, maybe it's okay to decide not to do it and do other things, or maybe you don't have time for anything else. That's okay. So rather than beat yourself up and feel bad about it, just say, in this phase of my life, I'm not going to do it because I don't have the time and it's not giving me enough joy that I'm going to find a way to make the time. It's okay. Financial grown-up tip number two. We get so many messages these days that we need to build in that date night with our significant other and commit money so that it sticks. When my husband and I had our son, we were told pre-schedule a babysitter every Saturday night so that we were forced to have a date night because things come up otherwise. This way, we'd put money on it. We were going. 
But I have to tell you, paying someone money to sit in our house watching TV while our son slept so we could go to a restaurant, maybe spend money on a taxi to get there, to spend more money for the meal then, it doesn't always work for everyone. And sometimes the idea that you're spending all this money puts a lot of pressure on you. Also, maybe the money just isn't there for that. Maybe your priority is saving for something else. Maybe it's paying down debt. Maybe that's where your priority is right now. And you can make, and it was great that Christina pointed this out, you can make a date night at home. Yes, it is absolutely easier to blow off if you haven't made this commitment. But Christina's example really was telling. The little things are important. Her husband's bringing her flowers. They really set the table. That makes a difference. I'm going to try it. Maybe you guys can too. If you are enjoying the promos and want one for yourself or your business, follow me on social media and share them. I'm going to be choosing a winner soon, and it could be you to get a promo made for you or your business. I am on Twitter at Bobby Rebel, on Instagram at Bobby Rebel One, and on Facebook, my author page is at Bobby Rebel. Also, love it when you guys DM me and share your thoughts on the show, and also suggest guests that you would like to see on Financial Grown Up. Everyone, go out and get Christina Alger's new book, The Banker's Wife. It is the perfect summer read. And thank you, Christina, for sharing all your money-saving tips and advice and experiences and helping us all get one step closer to being financial grown-ups. Financial Grown Up with Bobby Rebel is edited and produced by Steve Stewart and is a BRK Media production.